0: So good to see you. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. But it's a certain kind of local church. It's a church with a river running through it, the river of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe you are the hope of the world, not just us collectively, but you individually. You are God's masterpiece. The same way that Jesus represented the best, you represent God's best. And the same river that flows through all peoples is the river of power, the river of love, the river of a sound mind, like you were talking about, that flows through you and flows through me. Every one of us is equipped to represent God well. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you are God's masterpiece. I love that survey that we did. It's really sad. In the book of Revelation, Jesus took a survey of the church, except he was on the outside looking in. It's much better when we let Jesus be the head of the church than when he stands at the door and knocks. You ever hear that verse used for people who who are asking Jesus into their heart, behold, I stand at the door and knock? It was Jesus standing at the door of his own church, knocking, saying, "Uh, hey, guys, would you please let me in? And how important is it for us to allow Jesus to be the head of the church? There is one head. There is one Lord. There is one baptism, whether it's in Mexico or whether it's in California. We are one body worldwide. We are a powerful force to be reckoned with. But individually, this is what I want you to see. You are God's masterpiece. And I'm going to be telling my testimony, my story, the work that God did in my heart, I'm a California boy, I went to Berkeley, and we'll get into the, it's kind of a Northern California story. I know there's not any weird people that live in Southern California, (laughs) but I was kind of a seeker, kind of a New Age seeker. You know any of those New Age seekers? Are you a New Age seeker? You're in the right place. Just trying to figure out what God was all about. But it's so powerful when we understand the fingerprints of God on our life. You know, when you look in the mirror, there are genetic markers. Your physical appearance is the sum of the masterpiece that God formed in every generation from Adam until you. God wrote just in your design, in your mind, in your emotions, the genetic makeup of every generation back to Adam. You are God's masterpiece. When God looks at you, he sees your parents. He hears your grandmother's prayers. He sees the move of God in your great-grandparents' lives. He understands your family tree. He understands the good root and the bad root. He understands how to bring you forth into the purposes of God. And he understands how to lead you into a place where you win victories for your family, for your children, for your grandchildren, so they'll never have to fight those, those same battles and so that the blessing of God can come on your family. You are God's masterpiece. You're awesome. Now in Revelation it says this, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy. Now, what does that mean? The testimony of Jesus. So we're talking about your life. The testimony of what Jesus has done in your life. That story, testimony means story. That storyline is the spirit of prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is the now word of God. What God wants to say to everyone around you. You know, a man with an argument can never win against a man with an experience. And your testimony is your experience. When you share about Jesus' work in your life, don't share information. Share about life change. Share your testimony. Because as soon as you share your testimony, you're opening people's heart up to receive a testimony of their own. But a lot of times we get intimidated with people around us and we start arguing with them. Well, what do you believe about this? Well, this is what I believe. Well, this is what I believe. Argument to argument. You always win when you share your testimony because that's where the spirit of prophecy comes in. God begins to speak to that person's heart and say, I can do the same thing in your life. I'm your creator. I can change you. I can transform you. So every time you share your experience, you open up everyone around you to a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in their lives individually. Your your testimony is powerful. So I'm gonna share my story. No one else has a story like my story. But this is what I want to start and say. No one has a story like your story. And you've been planted. You've been planted at that university. You've been placed in that neighborhood. You've been placed in your extended family. You ever go to your family reunion and you go, who are these people? (laughs) Whose uncle is that? God placed you in that extended family because when you share your story, no one can argue with your experience and everyone is open to what God wants to do in their lives. And God is planting you all over Southern California, all over San Diego County in order for you To share an experience that will challenge the assumptions of everyone else around you. It will shake them to their core. Because in that, the spirit of prophecy, which is God speaking now, begins to move. When you share your experience, the Holy Spirit begins to move and do supernatural things in the lives of those who are listening. Now they'll give you the poker face. That's good for you. But you need to see what God's doing in their heart. They won't show you what God's doing in their heart because it's not safe. How many of you know in this world it's not safe to tell people around you what is happening in the depths of your heart? And when God starts to work in people's lives, he goes to the depths of the heart and he starts to change them from the inside out. And all of a sudden they feel this bubbling up of supernatural life that they can't explain and they can't explain away, and they're not just gonna tell you up front, oh, 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 you're telling your story and it's challenging everything I believe, but that's exactly what's happening. So I want to empower you to tell your story everywhere you go. Tell your experience. Don't worry about the information. It's the experience that's gonna change that person's life. Now how do we overcome in this life? We overcome by the blood of the lamb, I heard it right over here. Someone shouted out, and by the word of our? That's the experience we've had with God. We overcome, what do you overcome? You overcome everything. The world, the flesh, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, everything Jesus accomplished on the cross, coupled with something else. The word of your testimony, your story. No one has a story like your story. And, there's a third part of that, comma, loving not your life, even unto the death. So there's kind of like a little death you die when you step into that place where you kind of go, hey, I got a story I want to tell you. I've got an experience I want to share with you. You die a little to the anonymous self and you step into a place where God is going to use you to shake the lives of people around you. And that's what happened with me. I had a crazy aunt. We called her Crazy Aunt because She was the only believer in my family. And we would be talking about family this, family that, and she would go, oh, praise God. Jesus this, Jesus answered my prayer. We'd go, Crazy Aunt Verda. That's Crazy Aunt Verda. Well, I grew up in Chicago. When I was in eighth grade, I was playing catch with my dad with football. He went up to catch the ball that, uh, that I threw, and all of a sudden, he started gyrating in the sky. He lost a sense of balance. I didn't know what was happening, but I watched my dad fall hard, flat on his face, break his nose. Rushed him to the hospital. Turned out he had a brain tumor. We didn't know it. He was a healthy man, younger than I am now. Rushed to the hospital. They found a tumor the size of a lemon behind his left ear. The doctors operated on him seven times. My mother is panicking. Aunt Verda is the one who drives down from Pennsylvania to be with my mom. And the doctor comes out of the room that night. I remember there were just three of us there. It was my Aunt Verda, my mother, and me, 16-year-old boy. And the doctor said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, ma'am, your husband's going to die tonight my mom, was just. she just panicked. She didn't know what to say. My Aunt Verta stepped between my mom and the doctor, and she said, he's not going to die, he's going to live. And the doctor looked at her, and he said, you don't understand, that's a false hope. We've operated on him. He's bleeding out of all the openings of his body. There's nothing more we can do. And Aunt Verta goes, that's just the blood of Jesus cleansing him. She walked right past the surgeon. She walked right into the recovery room. She walked into the recovery room where everyone had the masks on. And she laid hands on my father, she prayed the prayer of faith, and God healed my father right then. And God gave my dad back to me for another 28 years. Now how valuable is that for a 16-year-old boy? That's the dancing hand of God. All of a sudden, God lands on a life, changes it forever changes the lives of the family around him. And I believe God's here to heal tonight. I believe you're, you might be here, and you're here to receive a healing from God. And I can be as crazy as my crazy inverta because I've seen, <laughs> I've experienced something, I have a testimony, God healed my dad. Now a few years later, when I graduated from high school, I, I went to UC Berkeley, I went to high school in Danville, outside Walnut Creek, and I was, I was really lost as a dog. I mean, there was Crazy Aunt Verda. My mom kind of opened up to the things of God at that point, but I was just the 19-year-old university student. And I'm going to school at Berkeley. My girlfriend's going to school at Stanford, so I would go down and see her one weekend. She would come up to see me one weekend. So I took Bart down to Stanford, and she met me at, at the door of her apartment like this. Craig, yes, uh, I'm not going to let you in because I've got to break up with you. What? I've got to break up with you. I gave my life to Jesus. What? What? We have plans. This is our weekend. What? Well, and she opened the door a little bit more. She said, this is hard for you to hear, but because I love you, I'm breaking up with you. I gave my heart to Jesus. Jesus. And she shut the door. And I started crying there in this little apartment building in Palo Alto with an empty weekend in front of me. And I prayed a little prayer. I said, Jesus, you can do anything you want with my life. And I started speaking in tongues. I had no idea what I was doing. I was praying in another language. (laughs) 19-year-old Berkeley student standing at Stanford praying in tongues. It's kind of dangerous when you think about it. (laughs) So beside my dad getting healed, that was my first experience with God. So I had this secret thing I did. I went back to Berkeley. Whenever I got under a little bit of pressure with school or something, I'd run up in the Berkeley hills and I would just, when no one was looking, I'd just talk in this language. I didn't know what I was saying. So I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle one day, and there was a word I kept saying over and over. I kept saying this word shanti. shanti, shanti, shanti. And there it defined the word that I said. It said shanti, a Hindi word that means the peace that passes all human understanding. Now, I didn't know that was a phrase lifted right out of the Bible. I just thought, oh, cool, Hindi. So I went to a linguistics professor on campus, and I said, Could you tell me what language this is? (laughs) He looked at me, he said, that's a rare dialect of Hindi. I said, I thought so, and I turned around and I walked out. (laughs) I was in my psychology class a couple weeks later, and someone asked the professor out of the blue, could you tell me about the phenomenon of speaking in tongues of glossolalia? And the the professor standing up there with no knowledge of anything spiritual, he goes, well, that's kind of a deranged syndrome of something or other. And then I stood up in the middle right about there, and I said, sir, I think what they're doing is they're talking to God. And everyone went. Because two things started happening. One, as I started speaking in this language, no one ever taught me. And in fact, there might be people here that, that want to receive a prayer language. Tonight, we can pray for you. But number two, and this might be even scarier, God started speaking to me. I started hearing a voice. So, up until this point, I was your typical Berkeley student. I would dance with the Hare Krishnas, I would read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I would go to any New Age cult meeting, and then I happened to do this other thing, speaking in tongues that no one knew about. But God spoke to me, I was leaving my dorm, and I was gonna go to this cult meeting called the Holy Order of Mons. I don't recommend it for anyone in this room. And a voice spoke to me and said, don't go there, stop. Turn left, go down the street, Stop, take a right, okay, go in this building. And this voice led me to the only spirit-filled church at Berkeley at the time. It was Mario Murillo's church, Resurrection City. And the doors were open and I walked in and there were little groups praying and they were all speaking in tongues just like I was doing. I thought, wow, other people do this. So I got in a little circle and I prayed in my prayer language just like they did. And then it's interesting now that I've had this position. I've been in church world so long. My job has been following up guests. But that church kept following me up. They were calling me up. Hey, you want to come to church? You want to come back? I'm thinking, why are these people calling me up? I had this isolated experience. I didn't get it. I didn't understand that God led me to a healthy church in order to plant me and root me, to disciple me and transform me. That was God's plan. But I didn't get it. And maybe you're here tonight, maybe you stumbled into this meeting, or maybe your friend drug you to this meeting, and you've never understood the importance of the local church. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And the same way that a branch doesn't have life of itself, you don't have life of yourself unless you're grafted into the vine. Jesus is the vine. The body of Christ is the vine, and the life flows out of the root. So you need a healthy church the same way I did, but I didn't get the message So I never went back. But about two weeks later, I'm walking through Berkeley. I see these guys sitting under a tree. And they had robes on. And they had Duck Dynasty beards. (laughs) Before Duck Dynasty. And I thought, wow, they must be spiritual. (laughs) Because you can tell how spiritual someone is by the length of their beard. So I sat cross-legged under the tree, and I said, hey, what are you doing? And they said, we're serving God. And I said, so am I. And they said, no, you're not. The only thing at this university is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I looked at him and I thought, wow, how did you know? <laughs> they said, if you really want to serve God, you've got to live the way Jesus did. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You've got to forsake all your enemies will be those of your own household really yeah if you really want to serve God meet us under this tree tomorrow and we'll teach you how to serve God so I went back to my dorm room and I had a choice that night I could study for a calculus exam or I could forsake everything and go follow Jesus so guess what I did I forsook everything and went and followed Jesus So the next day, I met them under the tree. They gave me a backpack. They issued me a robe, a robe, and sandals, and I went on an adventure. My roommate, Flint, watched me walking off with these guys. He followed me up into the Berkeley Hills. He found their camp. They They were camping in tents. He snuck through the tents. He tapped me on the shoulder. He said, come here. He pulled me by in a bush. He said, these guys are weird. He said, come with me. Get out of here now. And I said, Flint, I'm going to go serve God. And I went back in the camp. Flint ran back to the dorm, called up my parents in Illinois, and said, Craig has been kidnapped and brainwashed by a cult. And they didn't hear from me for two years. This was the Jesus commune. It's during the Jesus movement. There was a hippie commune in Northern California and an evangelist went through and preached that Jesus was coming back any day. And they go, well, what are we supposed to do? So they gave their hearts to the Lord. He, He said, well, Jesus said go into the highways and hedges and compel people, tell them Jesus is coming back and whatever it says in the New Testament, do it. They said, okay, and he left. So they packed up everything they had They got their tents, they lived out of backpacks, and they went from city to city telling people Jesus was coming back, and I was one of the the young guys that, that they told. So this group, if it was in the New Testament, they would do it. If it wasn't, they wouldn't. Now, there's some strange things that are not in the New Testament, like wearing glasses. So the first thing that I did was I threw away my glasses, couldn't see a thing, no toothbrushes in the New Testament, All the women go, (laughs) We debated whether there was laughter in the New Testament. So we stopped telling jokes. So this group was very monastic. It wasn't immoral. There was no drugs. But how many of you know that sometimes religion does the same thing to your mind that drugs does? And we went that direction. So day one, with my robe on, in this new group, People say, well, what was the name of the group? It had no name. They only wanted to lift up the name of Jesus. So it was a no-name group with a few problems. I wouldn't recommend it. Day one, we're hitchhiking down the Central Valley, and a car picks us up. We're sitting in the back. The car takes off about 120 miles an hour. The police pull the car over, spread eagle the two guys on the front of the car, search under their seats, start pulling out Bags of cocaine. Arrest the two guys, and we're me and this other guy are sitting in the back seat with robes on. <laughs> so I go, "What do we do now?" And this older guy, which was affectionately called the older brother, said, "Follow me," and he opened up his door. And we both walked out and walked over a hill like we were invisible. And the police never said a thing to us. I said, what just happened? He said, God delivered us. And I think he was right. So the next day, we hopped a train. How many of you have ever hopped a train? All right, you're sitting in the right seat, my man. In fact, aren't are you the guy I travel with? You know, beard. We hopped a train. First time I'd ever hopped a train from Nevada to Washington D.C. All the way across the country. So let me give you a tip: when you hop a train, always hop a train and jump in the boxcar. The train stopped in Iowa. We jumped out to get some food, and the train started taking off. Freight trains, they never tell you when they're taking off. And so we're running. We jump on this ladder, we climb to the top, the train's gaining speed, and we realize we didn't jump on the box car, we jumped on the car that was open at the top, and it was full of ball bearings. So, oh no, it's the ball bearing car so we spread eagle ourselves on top of this car full of ball bearings. They had some kind of like carbon coating on them. And as the train's taking off, we're sliding back and forth. Whoosh, on these ball bearings. And I thought, I'm going to die right here. This is going to be the end of me. My parents are never going to know what happened to me. And about 30 miles ahead, I looked at in front of us, and there was the Mississippi River. And one of those little narrow railroad bridges that went, over the top, and I thought, I'm going to fall right into the Mississippi River, and that will be the end. But God had mercy on us. And we went from adventure to adventure, living in our little group. There were families with little children with the same robes on. The women, this is the part I really like, the women had to keep silent at all times, And walk five paces behind the men. I mean, all peoples, you might want to think about this. (laughs) But it's really hard to recruit people to join this group. In fact, I might have been their last recruit, come to think of it. But we traveled back and forth across the country one summer. We lived in lower Manhattan. We found a burnout tenement building, we took our tents, we just hammered the tent stakes right through the floor, lived in this tough neighborhood the whole summer, a bunch of white guys with robes on, wasn't easy, and I remember the day they sent me out to, to get the food, and what we would do is, we would go out to a grocery store, we would dumpster dive, whatever we found, we'd bring it back, we'd put it in this big stew pot. So... It was my turn to go out to the grocery store. So I went out. I jumped in the dumpster. there's was nothing but ice cream. And it was July. So I filled up these boxes with Neapolitan ice cream. I'm walking through the Lower East Side. It starts melting chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry right down my robe. I didn't feel, feel very spiritual. And I started going, oh, this is not going to make it back to our camp. So I started saying, ice cream, who wants the ice cream? People are leaning out of their windows. I do, I'm throwing half gallons here and there. And we just had all these crazy experiences. We had a rule that said, you work a day's wage, a day's work for a day's wage. So we would work as day laborers in whatever city we would go to. So I remember spending a Christmas in Immokalee, Florida, as a migrant worker, picking cucumbers and tomatoes. So later when I went into the ministry, I did get saved, by the way. Did go into the ministry at some point. I, w- I was pastoring in Florida, and this guy goes, Pastor, I know it, it's, I'm asking a lot, but could you go to Mockley, Florida and, and preach to the migrant workers on Christmas morning? And I go, George, I'd love to. I was a migrant worker in Mockley, Florida. And he just kind of looked at me, and he said, really? So after two years of these adventures, I had two things going for me, and it kind of relates. How many of you were here this morning for the message about the, oh, you came back? The message about the promises of the word and the power of the spirit. I had two things going for me, if you remember that message. They gave me a Gideon's Bible. And since I was a new recruit, they would say, the only thing you have to do all day long is read this book. And I had never read the Bible before, so I would Wake up in the morning, I go, okay, Lord, what do you want me to read? Maybe I'll read the book of Job. And I would spend the day and just read a big chunk of scripture. So I was getting the word of God in me in spite of myself. And then the other thing was I would sneak off and do this thing that no one else in this group did. I would pray in tongues. So that was my little secret thing I did. No one else did that. But I would read the Word all the time, and I didn't realize it at the time. But the more I read the Word, the more I was getting the promises of God's Word deep in my heart. And the more I prayed in the Spirit, the more I was empowering myself to live the life of Jesus. So something was about to give. So after about two years, we were living in a rough part of of Washington, D.C., 50 guys in robes going to the YMCA to take a shower once a week, whether we needed it or not. And something woke me up in the middle of the night. I'm sleeping on a sleeping bag in this old tenement building. And I felt like God spoke to me. He said, leave this group now. That voice, the voice that led me to Resurrection City there at Berkeley. Leave this group now. So I got up, I stepped over all all of my feet. Fellow brothers in this organization. They were all sleeping in their sleeping bags. I walk out. I walk through uh, downtown Washington. I cross the Potomac River on the Francis Scott Key Bridge, walk through Arlington. The sun comes up. It's February. I'm cold. I don't have any money. So I thought, okay, now's the time to step out in faith. I said, Lord, you said you would feed the sparrows. I'm really hungry. I watched the sun rise here and was about to set here. I said, you've got to feed me. And about then on this little country road in Virginia, this lady pulls over in a minivan, and she has a pot full of stew. And she said, I saw you down the road. I thought you might be hungry. And I was going, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. She said, here's some stew and some biscuits. She had, she had a bag full of homemade biscuits. And I said, thank you, you're, you're feeding a servant of God. She freaked out, jumped in the minivan, took off. <laughs> she left me with this pot of stew. And I just read about Jacob. Remember Jacob's ladder we were talking about this morning? And Jacob said this. He said, if you will lead me into the land you have for me, I will give you tithes of all. So I looked up to heaven and I said, Lord, all I have is this stew and these biscuits. So here you go. If you'll lead me into the land you have for me, I'll give you tithes of everything I have. So I took this stew, I poured it out on the ground, poured out a tent, and I dropped the biscuit. And I ate the rest. Lead me into the land you have for me. And I slept by the side of the road that night, cold night, February. Woke up the next day, this farmer comes out of her farmhouse, she looks at me and she goes, oh my God, are you the the young man that got lost in the snowstorm? I said, no, I'm a servant of God. She goes, oh, well, I'll feed you anyway. So she went in, she fed me breakfast. I'm standing on this little country road. It's about seven in the morning. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And God spoke to me, spoke to my heart, and he said, go to Lexington, Kentucky. 14-hour drive, had never been to Kentucky in my life. Lexington, Kentucky. I said, okay. I turned around to hitchhike. The first car that came over the hill stopped to pick me up, which is a miracle when you have a robe on. <laughs> and guess where he was going? He was going to Lexington, Kentucky. He drove me the whole length of West Virginia. He dropped me off at the Salvation Army. He didn't know what to do with me. I said, Salvation Army, that'll work. I slept between two winos that night. <coughs> Woke up the next day, I said, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? So I opened up my Bible and said, when you go to a new city, inquire who's worthy and stay with them. You ever read that scripture? So I thought, okay. So I went up on the campus, University of Kentucky. I said, "I I knocked on the Baptist Student Union. I said, hey, um, I'm inquiring who's worthy to put up a servant of God. And they looked at me. And they said, well, we don't have a ministry to the homeless here. So I knew my Bible by now. So I turned to James, and I read this for him. If anyone comes to you and he's destitute of daily food, and you say, go and be filled, how does the love of God abide in you? And they go, what are you, a troublemaker? And they kick me out, and they lock the door behind me. So I kick the dust off my feet. Took a couple steps, asked this college kid, hey, do you know who would put up a servant of God? He said, ah, you can stay with me. So I went up, spent the night in his apartment, stayed with him for the next couple of days, and he's like, who are you? So I walked up on the campus, and there were posters everywhere that said, do you need a miracle? Do you need a miracle? And I thought, man, I need a miracle. I threw my glasses away. I can't see anything. <laughs> I was like... Do you need a miracle? (laughs) That's a good question tonight. Do you need a miracle? Is there something supernatural that God needs to do or God wants to do in your life right now? I believe He's here to do miracles. So I went to this auditorium, University of Kentucky. It was a church plant, they wanted to reach college kids. So, this was their first meeting. They were praying for college kids to get saved. And guess who, who their first guest is? The guy from Berkeley. I come in with my robe on. So, there's a greeter. Do we have any greeters here? Hey, look. Who was here setting up for this meeting tonight? I want to see the hands of the people sitting up. Uh, let's give them a hand. What's your name? Ryan, come here, Ryan. You'll, you'll be the greeter. So come on up here. Yeah, jump up here. Okay, so it was me and the greeter. So the greeter sticks out his hand because you know what greeters are supposed to do. And I didn't shake his hand. And he goes, well, why aren't you shaking my hand? And I said, well, it says in Proverbs, strike no man's hand suddenly. And that's what he did. He goes, he goes, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And then he walked over there and I walked over here and then he comes back real sheepishly. He goes, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm the greeter. I shouldn't have said that. Come on in. You know, I, I want to welcome you. Come on in. And I was like, well, I'm glad you got the point about not shaking hands. So I go in there and, and oh, by the way, While you're up here, Ryan, I feel like God's got a prophetic word for you. Great. I love it. Did you like that? Yeah, I would. When when I came, you were the first guy that I saw. And God just really impressed on my heart that he has seen your faithfulness. That you have been so faithful. And you just exhibited the heart of Jesus by having a servant's heart for everyone in this church. And I just heard the well done of God. Well done, good. son. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's, he's so pleased yeah, with you. That's good. Honestly, it is. That's super timely. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. You can, have, so you can jump off or you can take okay. the steps, whatever you want to do. Okay. <laughs> no, really, I, I saw Ryan and just so clear. This is the son I want to showcase. This is a man who has a servant's heart, a man like David. It was a heart after me. And it was just so clear to me. Thanks for jumping up here. Why I tell my crazy story, no, my testimony. I'm overcoming. (laughs) It's not a crazy story. I'm overcoming because you can't argue with my experience. So the room fills with college kids, just like tonight. Everyone's excited, except here's the problem. It was the 70s. It was the Jesus movement. We hadn't become as sophisticated in our praise and worship as you guys are. So what they started off with was the first song they sang was Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but they changed the words. (laughs) Think the Brady Bunch, but they got saved and they're leading praise and worship. It's kind of like that. So I thought, they're not spiritual, and I am. So I'm sitting right there with my robe on had already offended Ryan, and there was a pretty little co-ed right next to me, and we had one rule that no one broke in our group, and that was, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Remember, there are five paces behind us. So they said, everyone stand up, give everyone a hug. So this cute girl gives this 19-year-old boy a hug, and I go, oh. They all sat down, I stood up, and I laughed. I go, they're not spiritual. I'm not going to find what I'm looking for here. There's not going to be a miracle here. God can't move in this place. Because I was so religious. And so dry. And so confused. So I walked out that door. I walked out to Harrodsburg Road. And then God spoke to me. He said, Craig, read the book of Jude. So I still had my Gideon's Bible. I opened it up. The book of Jude. And it said this. It said, Wandering stars for whom is reserved the pit of hell forever. And God spoke to me, and he said, You are a wandering star. If you do not believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father except through him, you will go to hell. And in spite of reading the word, in spite of praying in the Spirit, in spite of being in this religious group for two years, I never believed that Jesus was the only way to God. I believed that Christianity was one path up the mountain, and there's other paths up the mountain, and if I had enough money for an airline ticket, I would have flown to India and done something there. And I was a seeker, but I had never submitted myself to the claims of Jesus Christ. And he confronted me right there. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all the deception that had kept me in this group for so long, and really created a lot of confusion. All of it just collapsed in my mind. And I started crying on Harrodsburg Road, right on the side, right on the shoulder there. I was going, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For about an hour, just crying on the side of the road. I was converted right there. So after crying my heart out, I looked around, still just me alone. So I walked back up to the University of Kentucky campus, and they were having the next night of meetings. And the evangelist that had been there the night before that i never heard because I walked out the door, he goes, aren't you the guy that was on the front row? I said, that I was different now because the night before when he saw me he was about to preach he goes get that guy i need to talk to him before the meeting starts and they the ushers that love me so much they walk me to the back and they the evangelist goes who are you what's going on in your life are you here to disrupt this meeting and i just read in the bible it said whenever men question you let your yea be yea and your nay be nay so i was determined to only say yea or nay So he goes, are you going to disrupt this meeting? And I went, nay. Nay. Are you a Christian? Yay. Yay. So I had really thrown him for a loop the day before. But now, it does say it. But now I come back and God had convicted me on the side of the road. And I really had conversion. Just a powerful encounter with God. Just, it transformed my life, and I was humble. You ever argue with the preacher? Maybe you're arguing with this preacher right now. Argue with the preacher with your head, but God's pulling you with your heart? So the, I see the same guy. He goes, come to the meeting. We're having another meeting tonight. I, he said, why did you leave during that first song? I said, well, I believe it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He said, oh, we believe that too. Just come on in. So I came in the meeting, but now I could hear the gospel, and I could hear what they were trying to say, and I was the first one that came down and gave my heart to the Lord. So that night, a number of college students got saved, but this crazy kid from California got saved too there in Kentucky. So everyone left the meeting except me and the pastor and his wife and I walked up to the pastor and I, I said, well, what are you going to do with me? I don't have any place to go. He said, you come home with us. So I jumped in the car. They drove me home. I'm, I'm so thankful for pastors that lay it all down for people. You know, Robert's like that. Robert's that, t- that type of guy. We had pizza over at Robert and Steph's house. They go, oh, whoops. We got to leave right now because we got to be in Mexico. Come on, kids. We got to go to Mexico for the baptisms. Hey, you want to stay around my, our house? Sure, I'll stick around your house while you go to Mexico and baptize people. I mean, they lay it all down constantly. This pastor was the same way. So I spent the night in his house. I woke up the next day. I said, you think I should call my parents up? He goes, I think that would be a good idea. So I called up my, my home. I'm in Kentucky. My parents lived in Illinois. And my dad answered the phone. And he started crying. I said, Craig, is that you? don't go anywhere, we're gonna come get you. And they came right down to Kentucky to get me. And this is what I found out. The day that the deception fell off my mind, the day I was out on the side of Harrodsburg Road and God spoke to me, that was the day my crazy Ann Virta called up my mom. And she said, Craig's been gone for two years, we need to fast and pray for him. That was the day they fasted and prayed for me. And all the deception fell off of me. And God set me totally free. And they took me back in the back room and the worship guy was given a Pigs in the Parlor book. Back in those days, they had these Pigs in the Parlor book They would have a list of all the demons that someone could possibly have. And he took that book, he didn't know what to do with me, and he thought, I'm not going to take a chance. So he just went down every row and cast out everything that it could possibly be in me. So I went in that room kind of confused and newly saved, and I came out just boo, bright and shining because he cast everything out of me and I was just ready for nothing but the Holy Spirit. My parents came down. My brother, who's 14, said, what in the world happened to you? And I said, God has changed my life. And he said, I want what you have. So I thought, okay, what did they, what did they do? They baptized me. So I took him upstairs, filled up the bathtub. I baptized him in the bathtub. I'd been saved two days. And he came up out of the water speaking in a language he'd never spoken before. He goes, what's this? What's this? I said, it's okay. It's what happened to me too. And he's been serving God ever since. So What is your testimony? What is the powerful, supernatural thing that God has done in your heart that no one can argue with? Are you ready for the next chapter of that testimony? Because that chapter can start right now. God is so awesome. He's the author and finisher of your faith. And I don't care what your track record looks like the last few weeks. He can start a new chapter of faith right now. If he could take this crazy kid from California and get him saved in some church in Kentucky, he could take you and unknot whatever problem you're facing right now and turn you into a radical disciple for Jesus Christ. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone in this room right now. For everyone that needs a miracle. For everyone who's argued against some of the things I've said in their mind while you're doing a work in their heart. For everyone that needs to just surrender and give their life to Jesus right now. I thank you that you see every heart and you're ready for a new chapter of faith. You're the author and the finisher of their faith. And you're here right now. The dancing hand of God is resting on different people in this room, ready to heal, ready to fill with the Spirit, ready to deliver, ready to give a prophetic word, ready to encourage, ready to speak words of life. And I thank you for having your way here. In the mighty name of Jesus.